Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Art and Labor. We are the podcast dedicated to the ongoing struggle to survive as art and or cultural workers. Um, I'm OK Fox. Um, do we want to just go around the horn? I feel like I've been introing every up, but we can we can switch it up. Sarah, why don't you go first? Hey, everybody. I'm Sarah Crow. <laughs> <laughs> do we not like it? Do, I, do we like when I just tell everyone each other's names? <laughs> I, I think we should evolve and introduce ourselves. <laughs> Try but, new things. <laughs> uh. And then we got Lucia. What's up? Lucia Love. <laughs> Lucia I'm Love. here again. Back this from the good. dead. Match everyone's voices up for the listeners. And then Darcy's here, of I'm, course. I'm Darcy. And we're joined by Sam Lefebvre. Um, Sam is a journalist, uh, like covering labor issues for hyperallergic. Um, and then he also has his own Substack, and the Substack is backbeat.substack.com. Um, and yeah, fans of our show have probably seen his stuff referenced and, um, been following his work for a long time. But if you haven't, yeah, click that author page on hyperallergic and just scroll through they're all bangers <laughs> <laughs> welcome to art and labor sam right on yeah thank you for having me uh yeah coming to you from uh from oakland uh i'm in your past you know I'm three hours behind <laughs> how's the weather there oh uh, you know it's 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 bright bright and breezy it's feeling all right you know <laughs> Did you catch some of that sun? We sent some back for you. Uh, Bird. Oh some wind. Bird. Some wind, but it, it could have gotten caught in some mountains. God, yeah, is... we did some pressure. We like pushed some of the pressure up so it'd go down. Yeah. Wow. Welcome to story time. We invite the listener to close their eyes. Time traveling story time. Yeah. Imagine the breeze on your face. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam, you're also a, a tenant organizer or, or you're in a tenant union. Um in, in Oakland, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm a member of um, the Tenant and Neighborhood Council, so I'm an organizing steward with the Central Oakland Local. Uh, shouts out the Autonomous Tenant Union movement. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, in, I was reading about the Autonomous Tenant Union, and um, I really, yeah, I really like the sort of politics. Like, to, to you, what do you think, like, makes it um, kind of... Uh, different than like other types of unions Hmm. well i mean what 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 i think's really empowering about tenant unions is like i think as tenants we're really like conditioned to you know when we have some kind of conflict or some kind of grievance like with our landlord we're sort of told that we only have so many options right and like one option is like some kind of judicial, semi-judicial recourse through like a rent board or some equivalent like civic body. And the other one is to like lawyer up and like try to sue. And most of the time, like that's all people kind of know to do, you know, and often you'll go to like a kind of service oriented, like nonprofit organization. And that's, you know, what you think of as the resource for tenants. Um, And so I really like that you know, tenant unions sort of provide this other option, which is, you know, building power with your neighbors and, um, you know, using forms of social pressure to, uh, you know, force your landlord to negotiate and to negotiate concessions. Yeah, that's, I I like that, that take like on the sort of like, yeah, more autonomous tenant unions. Like I'm, I'm on the steering committee for for my local tenants union and, and we're we're often like like conflicted or, or or not sure like whether we need to like rely on these like yeah kind of nonprofit legal services or like you know there's this separate like housing advocacy movement that like has won like real gains for like people to get lawyers or like these these they're all band-aids but it's like like something um but they they want a lot of other gains too with like rent control and like these larger legislative things but oh we just lost them but uh, let me just finish that that's different than um building power i guess <laughs> <laughs> let me see. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's so like the, uh, you like cut yourself at work and like, don't get blood on the thing. (laughs) I'm like, wait, should I fit it? I I was trying to like see how I could edit that, but are you are you back, Sam? Can you hear us? I think so. Yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. No, it's fine. Oh, it happens. Internet cuts out yeah. sometimes. But I was just saying, yeah, like, yeah, we we are often in the sort of snafu of like, um, like directing people to legal services, and then versus like also trying to build power and like um, use use like you know eviction defense or like other social pressures, um, and. Yeah, it it can uh, it can get confusing because there's a lot of like very valid criticism of like relying too much on the like nonprofit sector and um like yeah so I I feel I like I like like tanks sort of mission and I'll I'll definitely link it in the show notes because it's very interesting but <laughs> I guess more to the point um, we uh, were really uh, interested in in this piece you did for your uh, Substack called um, "Ruling Class Solidarity: Conflict and Growth at SF MoMA Reexamined: um, How Museum Collector Trustees Recapture Charitable Donations." But I guess that is related, right? Because it it is this sort of like um, you know using the shield of like nonprofit as like you know um, pretending like this is all of a big charitable endeavor and meanwhile they're raking in like millions of bucks and do you want to tell us a little more about like how um how you you know came to research this and um what you some of your findings were yeah totally i mean i i guess i can talk about i should start talking about this like like really generally and then maybe get into more of the details um but basically like as you all know as, as all your listeners know like in recent years, there's been really intense pressure around, you know, various you know, wealth criminals on uh, on museum boards or who are, you know, prominent donors to arts institutions. And um, one of the sort of lines that, that we hear a lot is that, you know, these institutions are basically laundering the reputations of these profiteers from various, you know, extractive, imperialist, repressive, carceral, and so on industries. And, you know, that's all uh, true. And, and I'm, I'm glad people are, are shouting that. Um, but with this piece, I kind of wanted to open up the point that, you know, museums do more for board members and wealthy donors than just launder reputations, right? And one way to see like what more they do is to you know look really closely at endowments is to look at a museum as an institutional investor right so you know there's some 58 billion dollars in art museum endowments uh nationwide right and you know this is money that they sort of outsource to various financial firms for management and um you know, those firms put the money into publicly traded securities, private equity, hedge funds, um, all kinds of things. And so, you know, one thing to say here is just like trustees, you know, benefit from all kinds of twisted shit, you know, financially, um, you know, so do museums. Like museums are passive investors in all kinds of, you know, pernicious industries, right? Um, they're a really significant source of investment capital for the financial sector is one way to say it. And along with that, you know, that makes museums really significant sources of fees and commissions for the financial sector. So when you realize that, and then you realize that the financial sector is better represented on museum boards than any other industry, right? There's more financiers on the boards of museums than by a long shot than, than rich people from any other industry. Right. Um, so, you know, we have this sort of like wisdom that's taken for granted that museums need endowment income for operating and growth and this kind of thing. Um, but we also need to note that, you know, as museums have grown, as their endowments have grown, um, 
you know, so has the many millions that every year they give to investment managers and advisors. Um, and at the same time, as SFMOMA is a really good example of um, same leadership figures at, at these institutions are pretty actively like suppressing wages for most workers, running these places more and more like, um, you know, impersonal corporations like, uh, you know, outsourcing various kinds of jobs, um, you know, running wild over various kinds of worker autonomy. Right. So. Um, and then be give, they're given loans sometimes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't sure. know if you want to mention that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, one of the things that CARES Act, thank you. <laughs> word, word. I mean, I mean, one of the things that really got just to kind of back up, I guess, a little more is like one of the things that really got me into writing about SF MoMA was, um, you know, in uh, I think it was 2018, there was the staff union was renegotiating its contract, and you know, I reported on that for for KQED at the time. And um, basically, you know, what what reporting on the this you know fraught contract negotiation at SF MoMA showed me was that you know between 2004 and 2018 or so, when the museum is really dramatically growing, right? It's getting this new building. It's acquiring these new collections. The budget, the endowment, all these things are multiplying. You know. And in that same period, um, you know, the hourly rate for most frontline positions was barely keeping pace with minimum wage in San Francisco, which, as we know, is a, an intensely costly place to live. And also in that same period, the board of trustees was were approving um, home loans for 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 the director Neil Benesra and the um, you know, now former senior curator, Gary Garrels. And these are specifically you know, interest-free home loans for them to buy houses. And they've kind of defended this move by going, Gary Garrels goes, look, I was coming from LA in order to deal with the cost of living. Like I really needed an interest-free loan to like buy my house or whatever. But in this 2018 contract negotiations, management was saying to the union, we refuse to use local cost of living to determine what a fair raise is. So, you know, that's obviously a double standard, you know. Wild. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I kind of like. It's too logical. <laughs> right. But it's also like exactly a conversation that I've had with bosses. They do not like it. <laughs> I mean, I need an in interest-free loan all the time. I could always yeah. really need. Yeah, that's funny. I had the same, like when I had like my one salary meeting with Artform, I was like, the cost of living has gone up significantly and like this wage is not like sustainable for anybody. And but, like, why don't you <laughs> stop eating food? You They're just like, how dare you? They were like, how dare you? <laughs> I, I've gotten a cost of living raise, um, but I think uh, that that I, I think it was because we were unionizing and they didn't <laughs> want me to sign a card. <laughs> well, yeah, right. and then I did, and then I don't work there anymore. <laughs> I didn't realize that was what it was at the time. He was thirty-five um, cents every paycheck more. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think, like the, like that particular, like uh, disenfranchisement of your workers is so typical in the arts industry that you like get into where. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I would say that the reputation laundering is second to the actual money laundering, but, <laughs> um, but there is always, yeah, you have a conversation with someone to be like, Hey, I can't like, you wanted to have a company in New York city and this is what it's going to cost you to like have people who work in it, but then be like, well, you know, like you're an artist, like you should be okay with not making any money and struggling. Like, well, yeah, we're used to hiring, uh, you know, children of rich people who don't complain. So mm. like, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I pulled a few points out of, 
um, the piece. Uh, and I was I was hoping maybe um, we could get a breakdown about actually what fractional donations of artwork are because it's sort of, I mean, it's interesting to me. It's sort of like a new uh, idea in this matrix of um, like finance capital taking over the art sphere. And I was a little, I have, I have the, I have the piece up now, but I still am not sure if I'm understanding it right, because it's like that intentionally complicated sort of ways that people make, um, you know, it's like they make finance into a game for themselves. (laughs) Right, right. So yeah, totally. I mean, in, in the context of the piece, like, the fractional giving um, section, I think, is, you know, a, an example of the way, um, as Donald Fisher, the, um, you know, late sort of uh, gap patriarch and, you know, prominent SF MoMA donor put it himself is, he said, you know, I, I think of collecting as investing, not because I sell it. So with this piece, I kind of wanted to take that seriously and go, okay, how is someone like that turning donation into something more like speculation? And the answer, um, in one answer is, is fractional giving. And so, yeah, fractional giving is simplest way to put it is it allows, um, someone to donate an artwork to a museum while keeping it in their home. That's one thing to say about it. Um, so what this kind of means in practice is, uh, you know, a collector will donate a certain percentage, a fractional stake of an artwork to a museum and the museum has the right, but not the obligation to, you know, show that piece, to call upon that piece for exhibition. If they have 10% of it, then 10% of the year or whatever, what happens more often is the donor just keeps it at their home. And where the sort of speculation part of it comes in is you can donate successive fractions of the same piece to an institution. So if you donate 10% of this painting and the news of that donation, um, you know, for example, boosts the value of this piece you own the remaining 90% of, then your next 10% donation to that museum is worth more than the first 10% donation, right? Right, and the clout from the museum ends up being the thing that gets you more money from it. I'm familiar with also, I guess maybe it should be said, like uh, a lot of the time to get a piece into a museum collection, um, there's a private sale that goes on from the gallery side, and that's sort of common practice anyway. Um, and then that goes into, uh, like, well, you, you know, Hey collector, you can buy this, but you have to donate it at a certain point, or we are sort of like pushing you to donate it instead of say, bring it to an auction house or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think like it's used as sort of a, it's sort of used as like a nudge. Like you can, if you can get someone to part with. of this piece now, like they're more likely to, you know, will it to you when they die or something like that. I think that's how some people in museums look at it. And, and I should note, like, um, you know, SF MoMA, according to Neil Benezra, you know, led the nation in the acquisition of fractional gifts. So this was a key pitch to prospective donors, to collector trustees, um, you know, by the mid 2000s, SF MoMA had, you know, stakes in more than 800 pieces. So this is serious. And and so this practice. And, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say you, you tied it to this um, uh, like app, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, like they're a firm, but masterworks.io. Um, and uh, yeah, it's funny. I've been getting like Twitter advertisements for them and I keep screenshotting them and I'm, I'm definitely going to post them this episode because they're, yeah, episode they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so nuts. They're like, um, it'll say like Banksy cause, uh, oh. uh, what are the other ones? Like the big, like 
stupid like Warhol, um, of course, and like stuff like that. They'll even have like Monet sometimes or like something like that. But it'll and they'll they'll be like listed like their different stocks and like and have like the little chart about like what's um what's doing well and like and it's just complete one to one like um this this like website has like completely like just made the sort of unspoken thing very clear. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. that's something else that that your piece touches on too that um I liked this I like this quote if it's uh if it's not too much but you said um as finance professionals transform art into an alternative asset class their expertise supplants the humanities related knowledge conventionally considered paramount in the field um most banks and wealth managers catering to ultra high net worth individuals offer an art advisory service probably including connections to the nearest freeport i feel like that sort of is like a masterworks thing right it's letting you know in real time how the value is fluctuating right and you and and they're inviting you to be clear like to give money to them to to tra- to trade with like similar to like other types of like mutual funds or i don't know whatever the fuck they're called <laughs> money words yeah yeah totally i mean i mean and and, and the, the way you know financial expertise is sort of coming to dominate field expertise i think's really important here in this conversation we're having to call out because if you try to bring this stuff if you're a if you're a union if you're an artist if you're an activist whatever you try to bring this stuff up to museum leadership you know what you hear is like mm, let's leave the institutional finance to like our investment committee to our chief financial officer like that kind of thing right <laughs> um and i just think yeah. that, that's an example of how like <laughs> the expert you know the the decisions like at the highest levels of these institutions are sort of being made according to like uh you know a very specialized sort of um and biased you know financial sort of terminology and and reasoning um that that really you know mostly serves to benefit like the finance professionals who are you know behind the wheel at these places on the board right um i i guess like right. i guess like one my kind of like provocation like with this piece and about SF MoMA, and I think it goes for, for most museums as large or bigger. Um, you know, I just kind of want to say, and, and this is by way of explaining the title, which I hope isn't misunderstood. Um, but it's like when a board member who is an investment manager donates a million dollars to a museum that in turn hands that $1 million to another investment manager who's receiving a fee, that donation, I don't think we should call it a donation. Like, I think we should call it a gesture of class solidarity, right? Like this is, uh, yeah, like, and, and yeah, that's my, my, my provocation. We're on board. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, we're calling well, up the like, dictionary. <laughs> it's, it's like tied to how like, uh, uh, philanthropy is really this like privatization of like public things that should be public goods and this is in that same line where at a certain level of wealth you aren't going to do anything unless you make money off of it um, and right it's not actually out of the goodness of their heart and the and the sooner that like the the most people or like the majority like or whatever the masses whatever can can like learn that it's just it's it's nothing is out of the goodness of their heart like uh, i mean i mean we talk about this on on the show sometimes like I, i remember telling this story about my mom like being like well at least you know like nancy reagan gave us this nice highway or like yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> or it's like totally. the, the piece that i wrote about the united right. states artists um funding all of these uh social practice arts so that artists can go and do um 
mutual aid basically in their communities and call it art, <laughs> but it's all in this sort of aestheticized world and the um the people who are from like Ford and Rathmus and Purdue are all they all firmly believe though that it's extremely important to have private funding for the arts because the of the issues with the NEA which kind of dovetails back I think into this piece because um I think there was mention of like uh people who are um, donating to the boards of these museums are also donating to like the Republican Party. Totally, one hundred percent. I mean, I mean, one way to you know something I try to remember, like when I'm talking about modern philanthropy, is that like most people, like even I think like a pretty standard uh, liberal person, like recognizes that the. Carnegie's and the Rockefellers and, you know, the philanthropists of like the turn of the century, like Robert Barron era, like most people, you know, with some sense of history, like recognize them as like craven capitalists, like cravenly anti-labor, like literally gunning down their workers who were asking for, their rights or asking for like the five-day work week or whatever yeah so it's very easy for us today to understand like why um you know andrew carnegie like styled himself as sort of a philosopher of charity or whatever and he he wrote this text in fact um you know the gospel of wealth so it's very easy for most people to understand that but then like but then like maybe you talk to your family member or whatever about like Bill Gates and they're like, Oh, like Bill Gates has like signed the giving pledge and like agreed to give away like most of his fortune, like yada, yada. So people Warren Buffett. Yeah. (laughs) So people want to give these contemporary like craven capitalists, like the benefit of the doubt when they talk about being philanthropists or whatever. And I think like those people, I have an anecdote. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, during this time, the of like the industrialist sort of um building, like building wealth in America, they were like you speak about the gospel of wealth, and um they 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 kind of like dipped into the Bible and looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and they were like, oh, um, strike like if you if you were a worker and you go on strike, you're actually like trying to murder your brother because (laughs) the yeah because the capitalists are better off so you so it's just this jealousy (laughs) yeah that's what they were using against these strikes that was when people were trying to form unions that was like the captive audience presentation in like 1907 yeah whatever yeah and then people were like oh i don't want to be against god i don't know (laughs) totally totally and and, yeah, or, I, and yeah, my, I guess I'm like, oh, but what about the nice crumbs we got? Like, type of, like yeah. you mean the pillar of salt when you uh, turn around, <laughs> and that's the last look. Or it's but like it's like this, the, the museums. They, but now we have these nice museums, like or like the oh. electric battery, like batteries for electric cars. I feel like I keep having this argument with people. It's like Elon Musk didn't do that. No. Like, he, he did. He he was. He's he really is fa- a failure at everything he's tried to do. Uh, he what he like been a, made his anything. contract so that he would be a retroactively a founder of Tesla. He's not a founder of Tesla. <laughs> he couldn't even start. <laughs> Which is smooth in itself, like props for just uh, getting in there. <laughs> you know. Leon Saigos, is that how you say? It? I I never learned how to say it. The uh, guy who tried to assassinate McKinley. I remember there was some connection with the Frick. Like maybe well, was it oh, was that, it that he tried to shoot him that, outside the no, Frick? No, this no, is no, just no. truly Cholgosh associative. Leon, Leon Cholgosh, the anarchist. Yeah, he the the association with Frick <laughs> is Leon Cholgosh when he was arrested for, for trying to assassinate that dude, the president, 
Um, Emma, mm -hmm. Gold, Emma Goldman was also arrested, like the contemporary, you know, anarchist of, of that time. And Emma Goldman's longtime partner, Alexander Berkman, that's the guy who tried to kill Henry Clay Frick for, for sicking the Pinkerton detectives on his striking workers. Um, and, and I think, uh, art, audi <laughs> art audiences will be familiar with the, uh, the Frick name today. <laughs> Oh yeah. Has anybody seen the Frick collection in the uh, Met Breuer building? I I thought of it because I walked by it the other day and uh, I didn't realize that it moved there. Yeah. I saw like, an, I just saw like, uh, it, I didn't know that they had moved there, which is kind of embarrassing, but like had seen on Twitter, like a shot from, I was like, they're like that window is <laughs> That window is going to be in the art world forever. That funky window. That yeah. just like. <laughs> the old Whitney dumbass yeah. window thing. Yeah. <laughs> dumbass window doesn't even do <laughs> window shit. It's just little. I like it, but yeah. It's like <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I, sh I shouldn't be so. How do you show flip. work around it? It's like. It's ugh. better than the new Whitney. <laughs> it's definitely that. better than the new Whitney. Yeah. I know nothing about architecture. No, the new Whitney sucks. I apologize for bringing this up every episode, but the uh, <laughs> reputation laundering did remind me of the the great work that Nan Golden and Payne is doing with the Sacklers. Um, do you have any perspective on that and how it works in, like, what you predict the future of that might be? With yeah, I guess related to that, like, there's this new, like, Strike MoMA document. I'm wondering if you've seen it and read it. Um, uh yeah, I I went to like the orientation and I have some some thoughts, uh, I guess. But I, I guess I guess like a lot of people um, who have been doing like long time like art activism type stuff, like to colonize this place or like some of these groups that have been around for a long time make, making actions um, are now just like, all right, we're just we're just done. And MoMA's going to be the first. <laughs> One, they're kind of taking like a hint from the David Graeber piece kind of about just like abolishing the museum, I, I feel like. And um, and and just being like, we're going to we're just going to make this like receptacle to archive like every sort of like action um, critical of the MoMA or against the MoMA. And then maybe eventually this will like materialize into um a way to like get rid of the structure of the MoMA as we know it or whatever I don't know what you think about that letter yeah I I guess you know the the thing I I can I want to say or maybe flag about kind of moving forward and and this isn't super specific to what what you're asking me about um granted but but basically like you know it is clear to the philanthropists to the museum executives, all of this kind of thing, that it matters to the public, like where, you know, donors money comes from, like that has been accomplished. And I think that the art establishment realizes that the next question people are going to be asking is, or, you know, thing people are going to be saying is that it matters how museums make money with respect to their endowment investments. And they are preparing for people to say that. The philanthropy advisors, the wealth managers, they're coming up with the thing for the museum directors to say when you ask whether this museum's invested in fossil fuels or whatever the hell. And they're going to be like, you're right, we've divested from fossil fuels, we do impact investing, like, you know, we go with black owned investment manager <laughs> firms. Like there's this thing, this thing hey. they throw around in institutional finance called uh, ESG. Like, I think we're going to be hearing more about that uh, in the museum context. And, you know, it stands for like environmental, social and governance. It's all about, you know, um, equitably participating in financial markets or whatever the hell. And I think like, because that's really coming up and we're going to hear more of it, that's all the more reason to go. The problem is not only when a museum, you know, profits from some especially fucked up industry, 
the problem is the very significant role that museums, like other nonprofit institutions, like play in the financial system itself, which is, you know, um, you know, which is as an important cog of the kind of, you know, finance-led economic growth regime that we live under that's, you know, bringing us inequality, that's, you know, entrenching um, the kind of class divisions that, that we live in today. So I guess you'd say maybe it, it makes sense that people have gotten to this point where they're like, okay, done. Like, let's, <laughs> let's find a way to just dismantle MoMA because we don't want like any, like, and I like, I like, a, like a lot of the language is like very direct, like confrontational anti-capitalist and, um, and yeah, I, I, I liked a lot. Of, I liked a lot about the letter. Um, yeah, I guess like, yeah, my, my like kind of main concern with it is like, it's, it, it's often kind of like these higher profile or academic people that, um, like kind of, uh, run a lot of these like activist spaces and um i'm hoping there's like enough they, they talk about it a little bit i think about maybe like some sort of like just transition for workers that and and like yeah how to in incorporate like that like disconnect between like people who are like well yeah moma's been my job for <laughs> the past five ten years and uh turn moma into a workers co-op well, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't know why it has to be like destroyed. I don't really get it. I just turn it into a workers' co-op and let people have culture. Be it, it feels like yeah, the workers do know how to run it. So it's like get rid of the the kind of boss level. Get rid of the big CEOs taking these huge loans and apartment gifts and yeah, things the, like that. Because the cultural workers who are like in the art history department and the curatorial department and all of these people who are like like geniuses in their field who have studied and gotten PhDs and like care about like where all of these artifacts are coming from like they should have more say at like what goes on in the institution that that's what they studied to do and it's just crazy that they're barred from it but they shouldn't have the rug pulled out from under them like no more museum <laughs> yeah it's that often a, uh i think especially because the language when when you start talking about like abolish moma or something uh is that then well we'll just build a new thing instantly that can that can be that well, just think about transition. the new museum like <laughs> yeah right like the the new museum when in its founding was this like worker cooperative it did kind of have like a it, it, like right. you know referencing lenin and like having these like worker wages and um, and then as it scaled up it started to take on the same sort of issues because we live under capitalism so exactly. we can't look yeah. at a structure and just say like oh we'll destroy it and build it again and that's what'll make it good it's like well i mean we have examples of why that that's actually just kind of leads to the same thing because we haven't fixed the holistic system that leads to these issues in the first place but what I mean, if we the, reform it the second time we do it. Oh, reform <laughs> and it revolution to a, together. We send it to a class oh. and tell it to not do the things it did before. Re-education re camps yes. are all of yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. My, my uh, grandma was a MoMA volunteer for oh, 20 well. years, but, but now I see that she was just a scab. Oh. <laughs> But that has to be like, like when we think about like, you know, like Lucy Lepard and like the, the folks at the, at the open hearing who talked about like turning museums into libraries, like, you know, this type of thing. Uh, to me, it's like, yeah, it's like this combination of like worker cooperative and pu complete public ownership. Like, uh, you know, like, I'm not quite sure how that would work, but yeah. there's like. I'm sure there's some other like sort of models we can think about, but yeah, go ahead, Sam. Sorry. Oh, totally. No, I, I mean, I, a simple, yeah. I mean, I think the demand for greater, you know, worker control at these institutions for like people to have a more meaningful say over, you know, how to do the thing they're trained to do or whatever. I think those are great demands. I, I think unions are a great vehicle to make those demands 
and I guess like on a sort of um, next step kind of like actionable thing related to that, I think we need to really like tear down museum and nonprofits like bogus reputation for like relative transparency. I think there's an idea that like we know more about like museums than other kinds of corporations because like I can look up, you know, the top 10 highest paid employees on the tax returns or whatever. And so people think like, oh, it's like easier to see what's going on. I, I want to say like, fuck that. I want to say like nonprofit just means a more convoluted form of commercial secrecy. And I think if workers want to organize around institutional finance, around institutional decision making, this kind of thing, one of like the immediate demands to make is really for information. Like even as a journalist, like I'm, I'm continually refused the most basic information about who's calling the shots at museums. I'm continually refused the names of the board members who serve on the investment committee, you know? And to bring it back to this SF MoMA piece, like there's a scene at the very end where there's sort of a, sunshine meeting town hall uh kind of gesture where they had this zoom meeting it was like a board meeting that was open to the public but you know they didn't address anything substantial yada yada and i was so kind of interested and and um to notice that someone tuned in and there was sort of a public comment period and just straightforwardly asked, you know, if the museum's endowment is invested in fossil fuels. And of course, I was thinking about all this stuff, thinking about the activism around this museum, sort of wondering why the endowment wasn't a bigger part of the conversation. And um, Bob Fisher, who is, you know, Donald Fisher's uh, son and the, the president of or the, the chair of, of the board now, he he responded in the most like. Oh, just like typically evasive, like jargon, Latin, deflective way you could imagine. He was like, I don't believe our endowment investments are public. It's a broad based index oriented strategy. And like, that's the kind of thing, <laughs> you know, like, like we need to be like, excuse me, your endowment investments aren't public. <laughs> like, that's, I don't know, I, th I think that should be a really key demand around with um, kind of uh, activism around art institutions right now. Yeah, definitely. That would open the door for more campaigns like, um, yeah, like, like pain against the Sacklers and it just allows people to actually find out what they want to do with the financial structure, which should ideally, I guess, just also be open like we can't have a small group of of people telling just I, I don't know just like claiming expertise instead of the the financiers expertise it's like you know I think the majority of people would agree that we don't want like the profiteers from the opioid crisis to be washing their reputations in in our cultural institutions and if it was like oh i also don't want petrodollars i also don't want the people who are uh mining for metals like i don't want like uh people who are making weapons you know i mean I, and i think it would force everyone to realize what everyone is actually profiting off of and yeah, including artists. I think that's like also people don't want their artworks to be a part of these uh, uh, just very spidery secret networks of uh, immiseration. <laughs> I, uh, I like what Kimberly Drew says about like museums also as community. No, I don't want to say centers, uh, but she does talk about how uh outside of the art world museums could do more to welcome i don't know there was this one example where she was like it was raining and i went into a museum and i i was i didn't get wet and that was a great use of museum and just how you know <laughs> right. cooling centers increasing <laughs> that you know like 
I found that heartwarming of like if there was actually a community inside MoMA instead of a heartless. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, that's so, so different than the example in the piece of like the SF MoMA worker, I think, that had a bomber jacket draped on their shoulders and oh my God. they were like taking a nap in the <laughs> lobby or something and people thought that she was homeless. Oh my piece of shit. Well, that, that was like... that was at another museum in San Francisco, the Exploratory. Oh, okay. But, but point point stands, just for for the record. But point stands for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted I wanted to like revisit this like kind of like idea of like the progressive VC that's been permeating. Like I have, and I you know, Sam, you of course like kind of you come from a DIY tradition um, as well. I've encountered several like former DIY people who are now like kind of into this like whole like progressive VC bullshit and <laughs> I just don't even know like where to like what went wrong <laughs> kids look to your left look to your right <laughs> they promised us that they would be okay Ed Williams <laughs> told me yeah. the great by the way uh, Ev Williams who founded blogger and twitter and medium the best part of his wikipedia page i hope it's still that is that uh, none of ev williams endeavors have ever been profitable <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean uh, i don't know we're we're not gonna we're not gonna like democratize finance people like uh you know like... <laughs> thank you, like, but like, you know... but like, i got this robin hood app <laughs> well even even and it's uh, it's such a prevalent cultural force right now i mean there's a direct line between yeah the robin hood gamestop shit the nft shit whatever progressive bc yep. stuff you're thinking about with it yeah why people are into which is mortifying like there's like a, a direct you know link, link between all of those things, and they're all they're all serving to you know it's all part of a project to sort of make you know non-ruling class people think they have like meaningful um, sort of uh, that that they have the possibility to like win within the financial system like as if the financial system wasn't you know created for and continues to be you know determined by uh like the balance of class forces right <laughs> um but bless but, everybody who made a dollar i don't know i'm i'm for people making some money gonna say, like the, no, no shame the, the arts like attract a certain kind of like there's like a, a kind of base level of delusion that you have to have <laughs> to be an artist and and I think that it's like the same thing with DIY spaces because it's a it's always kind of an insane idea, which is why then they collapse. And like, but uh, but I to think me that, it's not it's it's not that much different from like people being like, okay, we're gonna go on this corporate retreat, everyone, yeah, and then yeah, we're exactly. gonna have this yeah. presentation about this timeshare opportunity. Yes, <laughs> it's like gonna do it. People who like little schemers. Um, <laughs> yeah people who have ideas where i'm like why would i just want to sleep i would i'm just gonna yeah exactly they like are flipping uh camera equipment on craigslist to make money and like but that's exactly the kind of like scrappy uh uh personality that then is just like can get magnetized to jvc i mean i was just you're just reminding me like you know obviously like I think like every artist is like conditioned to think of himself as like a small business owner, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we're all like, right. we're all yeah. independent contractors, whatever we like, yeah. you know, we like write off. Gotta our get your LLC set up. Yeah. You like write yeah. off your expenses and all this kind of thing. And so you have this kind of like, um, you know, this like illusion of like, uh, more control over like the means of production than like someone who works in retail or whatever when in fact you're just as like um you know sort of structurally disempowered as like an uber driver is who like files the same kind of you know tax return that you do um you know and i i think that's like yeah with without any benefits yeah yeah 
you know? You got to try to, like, make... The thing in New York is making under the minimum for Medicaid, yeah. <laughs> and then you're good. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. Trying not to make this sound... I don't... I mean this earnestly. How are you liking Substack? Oh, I, I actually... Like... <laughs> I actually, I wish, I wish it wasn't like I have a Substack. People keep saying that, and I'm like, oh, I, I do. I guess I don't know. I was just like, wanted to. Yeah, but like, we have a podcast. I mean, we have yeah. a Patreon. <laughs> I don't, what are we gonna I don't, do? I don't know. I want to. I want to change my newsletter thing to that thing that um, my friends Jan, Jan and Liz Pelly are using for their like music reviews newsletter. They got Sub, substation. Subs. I'm gonna switch over to that. Yeah, shit yeah. Right now. We keep talking. <laughs> We keep talking about it. We had Liz on recently. Yeah. We had Liz on recently and, and she talked about it and it, yeah, it, it seems like a, a decent alternative for, for now, but um, yeah, it's always tough um, uh, when you're, you're kind of relying on like the, the good graces of like one dude to um, that's like kind of my criticism of it, I guess. It's like that, that dude might have a price, you know, and then once PayPal buys it off of him, then you have to do it all over again. Uh. <laughs> I mean, go, okay. Can I, can I like, can I be a little like catty gossipy? No, let's hear it. No. Okay. So, like, it's the end. So nobody, nobody's listening anymore. <laughs> right. so, so the only like this piece, like this piece, I sub stacked it, whatever. I emailed it, whatever. I self published this piece because I worked on a related piece for a magazine, Art News, was going to be in the print edition, and I had this nightmarish editing experience, and I withdrew that shit. They, like, turned it into something that, like, left me, like, feeling, like, seriously embarrassed. And, like, I was like, great, I'm going to have to apologize, like, everyone I interviewed, whatever the fuck. And so I, I just I just ended up. <laughs> I noticed that part of the. You know? Right, yeah. So, so that's you do have a line in it. You're like, I pulled the oh, yeah, <laughs> did I mention that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was, it was really annoying. Was a, it was a brief aside. I was think, I, the... yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's like, yeah, I had a feeling because it's like you're, you're published a lot, a lot of places. Like, if there's a reason that this one didn't really get picked up the way that it. Yeah. Should have I mean, been. it was like, it was like, I were, and the thing, it was, it was a lot different, like the thing I ended up filing for them. And then I got really frustrated with that. And I was like, God, with this piece, like, I really just want to say what I mean. You know, I'd been, I'd done all this reporting, all this research, whatever. So I, I, I made a decision like to self-publish it and just write it exactly how I wanted. And like, that's part of a bigger, like, thing about renegotiating my sort of relationship to journalism like i'm i'm working outside of writing now like i i don't i'm i'm kind of you know disenchanted with the idea of of trying to write for a living um especially around art stuff because you know i've had more than one experience like that where you know uh, that kind of critical writing about the art establishment and particularly in the bay area is like not welcome you know I, I worked at like a public media outlet it was my last kind of like full-time job it was kqed it's an npr member here and yeah. um you know another big piece i wrote about sf moments board uh, a couple of years ago for a, a local outlet called mission local was something that um kqed killed you know pretty straightforwardly because a big you know, museum like SFMOMA in the Bay Area and a big nonprofit media outlet in the Bay Area like KQED, I mean, they have similar funder base, right? So I was told straightforwardly that, like, yeah. you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw rocks. That's my editor's editor put it to my face, you know? So I've run into oh shit like God. that. <laughs> so it's that kind of, that's the kind it's of awful. thing that's like, you know... Uh, I don't know if, if, if I want to write yeah. about the arts with like a point of view or whatever. Like, I don't have any expectation of like making a living at it anymore. Yeah, I was going to ask if the art news was about PR stuff and just not wanting to break that relationship. And if it was like small little thing, I don't know, because uh, publications try to justify it 
by just like either little tweaks or something or uh you know sometimes just being like well we can't uh risk our relationships so i was just i was just you know poking around uh <laughs> that little gossip hive about but yeah i don't know it seemed really uh hardy and like really well researched for substack um so it makes sense to self-publish and it's actually despite substack quite endearing um to see it like out in the world cool self-published so right on right on i'm a little corny <laughs> Uh, no, but I think yeah. it's like it's it's uh you don't often see I think the laser focus being put on one uh one place almost. I mean, we do with like the Sacklers and stuff, but uh it's a very like kind of complex system you're describing and it's extremely concrete and someone you you like have the feeling that all of these things are happening all the time, but you don't know how they work. You don't know who's doing it and how. Um, and I think this clarifies so much and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So yeah. Oh having God, those numbers, you. having those hard numbers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in that, uh, in that diagram for all the diagrams are great. Yeah. The, yeah. the <laughs> reputation laundering yeah. the arrow going up for glory. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much fun making that. I was like self-publishing. Cool <laughs> get to make my own flowchart and Google Draw or whatever the hell. I yeah. But yeah, but like, I, I, I'm like, Art I was wondering yeah. who made it. Yeah. I, I'm like pretty folk. I'm like pretty like, I like mostly write about Bay Area stuff. Like kind of always have, you know, I like, oh, so a lot of my friends work at SF Mama, you know, like it's like a big, uh, you know, has a big presence like in my life or whatever, and those are the institutions like I gravitate to writing about. Um, but with this piece, you know, the kind of research I was doing around the endowment and that kind of thing, I totally want to do that kind of research on like more of a field wide level. Um, because most of the trends I'm describing at SF MoMA are, are, are very similar at any museum of a similar size or bigger over the last like 15 you know since like the great recession or whatever like the contours um just you know are are, are shared on more of a field-wide level um so yeah, yeah. i always get um nancy fraser and andrea fraser confused um <laughs> one of them has this gigantic tome of like andrea kind of all fraser. these breakdowns and numbers yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be helpful to you. <laughs> yeah. That's all I, the, I've, all I've the only like looked at uh someone else's copy, but that's all the <laughs> that's all the trustees political donations, I think, that book you're talking about, right? It's like a telephone book volume. Okay. I think so, yeah. Yeah. In like the two thousand sixteen <laughs> election or something like that. Yeah. I've looked at that. Yeah, and she's done a couple like similar projects. Um, I wish they were more accessible. <laughs> Andrea, if you were really throwing the hammer down, though, would you be where you are? That's my it's question. the thing. Institute. She's got a lot of institutional support. Um, it's not a very easily fi findable document. Um, there's something to that. There's something to just kind of capturing people and and making it known only in like these exclusive circles, but. So, yeah, I'm definitely – that's why in the show notes I often link the, like, you know, book.ok, like, lib, libgen. <laughs> oh, yeah. All of the steals. Oh, yeah. Word. Yeah. PD Look, information wants to be free. <laughs> PDFs. Look, PDFs if you, if you Google an address in another city and they have a library in that – that town then you can get a library card hypothetically not that hard yeah you can get a canopy account hypothetically oh, <laughs> canopy rules, yeah. you know <laughs> in new york public library and canopy had a really acrimonious breakup it was very public oh my god really that's so sad <laughs> or i think i don't know <laughs> Yeah, breakups are always sad. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, they sent they sent out an email saying that Canopy had decided not to renew their contract. <laughs> the library no. did. Oh, oh, I kind of remember this happening. I remember this was a big thing for a bit. Everyone was or maybe really it was mad. Canopy that sent out the email. I don't remember. And then the other one sent an email that was like, we didn't want them to say that. Oh. They got too close to the sun. They got too close to the sun. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> when friends get into business together, it gets emotional. <laughs> well, okay. So, so I stupid. everybody has to read this piece. It's really good. Um, and then I'll, I'll link your other piece about SF MoMA that talks about the like uh, apartment loans. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you read something on affordable housing. Uh, oh, the, or, uh, or no, 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 no. Exactly. That was like. Wait, no. Oh, was that not? Shared some, I shared something about that recently, but. Uh, but I, I, but I did write a. Oh, okay. No, yeah, go ahead, because you probably have written about housing being a tenant organizer. Yeah, I mean, I've written a lot of like Bay Area housing stories, um, but uh, I did do a, a just totally unrelated the other day. I, I reported a, a short piece about a tenant union in Boston um, protesting an ICA Boston board member who is their landlord. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, so Mimi, um, I, I was really pleased to come across that story because I was like, "Whoa, museum boards and like tenant unions like together, it's one story." I gotta cover this, right? Um, so I want to check that out. <laughs> oh yeah, that one's great too. I definitely read that one. Yeah, you gotta unite the Soviets, people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, anything anything else people should check out that that you're working on or that um, you're trying to plug or anything? Oh well, I, I just published no musical I, projects. I mean, people want to listen to my music. Yeah, I heard you're like, in a sick band. I don't know. Have have fun. Uh, <laughs> I hope you like. Wait, I hope you like saxophone. <laughs> Good uh, luck. Shining review. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, the thing I would I would like to maybe mention is um, I was sort of like a, you know, so-called uh, writer in residence with a, a gallery in downtown Oakland, like in recent months. And um, basically, I, I, I got a little budget and put together this print publication called uh, Terrain, Art and Crisis in downtown Oakland, um, which is all about like 2020, um, you know, specifically, uh, you know, artists sort of responses to the kind of interlocking uh, crises of the year. So it's people um, sort of writing critically about the groundswell of like public art in downtown Oakland, the groundswell of, you know, mutual aid projects, like all over the place. Um, and uh, that kind of thing. There's like, I think like more than a dozen contributors. And um, I worked with some uh, some friends uh, on sort of designing and printing it. It looks really nice. I don't know. We, we just started shipping these things. So wanted to plug that for sure. We have to get one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Act fast, folks. Uh. I'm going to have to snag one. It sounds really good. Um, yeah, it was really awesome to um, meet you you know, digitally and, um, hopefully when, uh, travel <laughs> is easier, we can meet in person someday. That'd be really sick. I've never been to the Bay area and I've always wanted to, uh, <laughs> uh oh my God, road trip. Um. <laughs> that'd be tight. <laughs> and I'd love to see all the spaces over there and everything going on. Um, but yeah, um, thank you so much for going on Art and Labor. People can support us at uh, patreon.com uh, slash art and labor. Um, yeah, do, do any do any of you guys have anything coming up? Interesting. Uh, I have some you? things. Uh, Thursday, April 8th. Uh, I'm in a group show at the Hole Gallery on Bowery. Ooh. 
Yeah. Big time. Yo, painting, Gallery. painting, <laughs> painting, sculpture. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> Around the corner from the used bookstore. <laughs> on Easter. Outside drinking. Outside drinking. That's the best part of the pandemic. That's like probably the only good part of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh, this public yeah. drinking thing out the window. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Do it, actually, please. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> please get out of your house. <laughs> Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, I like this show. Uh, I, it's really nice that to self-publish something and that people like take it seriously, you know, and, and want to talk to you about it. So, so I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, this was really yeah, fun. Yeah, of course. So. We'll have all thank the links are in the on. show. Yeah. Yeah, thank you Yeah. Um, writing is awesome. I gonna... know it's really late over there. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna stop the recording, but we'll keep talk. We'll keep chatting without these uh, listeners. Oh yeah, let's have fun. Us. <laughs> let's have fun, but lots of fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Lots of fun.